Once four theologians went on a camping, camping trip together. It was just about time to get some sleep when one of the men said to the other three, Guys, before you close your eyes tonight, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Well, the first theologian, he spoke up. I see billions of stars stretched over millions of galaxies. Yet of all the planets, only Earth can sustain life. The next theologian, he piped in, I see the massive expanse of space as evidence that God is infinite and that we are finite and we find our significance in his concern for us. The third theologian, he concluded, I see a night like former nights when my life was troubled. God was with me in those dark days. He was with me in the darkness and the stars remind me of his faithfulness. Finally, the three theologians, they turned to the guy who had brought up the subject and they insisted, hey, why don't you tell us what you see? The guy answered, someone stole our tent. You know, it's good to think high and lofty thoughts, but we also need to be practical. The Bible addresses heady philosophical subjects like the meaning of life, but the Bible also gets down to earth. It applies to everyday issues like money and kids and marriage and work and wine and words and beauty and on and on it goes. Everything from occupation to temptation to conversation. And nowhere does the Bible get more practical than in the book of Proverbs. When the Bible was organized into chapters, it's interesting to me that the Proverbs were arranged in 31 chapters. One chapter for each day of the month. And if you took a chapter of the Proverbs every day and applied it to your life, trust me, the benefits would be tremendous. Billy Graham made an interesting observation about the book of Proverbs. He said, the Psalms teach us how to get along with God. The Proverbs, how to get along with our fellow man. And I agree. You know, it's amazing the accumulation of knowledge that we're experiencing today. Listen to these statistics. Every 60 seconds, 2,000 typewritten pages are added to man's knowledge. The material produced every 24 hours would take one person five years to read. The modern world overflows with information, data, data. We are besieged with data. We're growing smarter by the second, but the question is, are we growing wiser? Max Born was a friend of Albert Einstein, an accomplished, renowned nuclear physicist in his own right. And just before he died, he said to German television, I'd be happier if we had scientists with less brains and more wisdom. Wisdom, you see, is not just a vast memory. It's not just the mastery of facts and concepts. It's the discretion needed to use my knowledge in a way that is beneficial. Wisdom has to do with knowing what to do with what you know. Oh, how we need wisdom. In a December issue of its magazine, US, the U.S. Weekend, the magazine asked a number of celebrities what they wanted for Christmas. And I like Bill Moyer's wish. He said he wished for a sudden epidemic of common sense to break out among the politicians, pundits, and talk show hosts who shaped the national debate. And I couldn't agree more. But this is what would happen. 
If we were to take the Proverbs seriously and learn from its wisdom, we too would have an epidemic of wisdom. Once a business executive was asked the key to his tremendous success, he responded two words, good decisions. The interviewer then asked, well, that's great, but how do I learn to make good decisions? He answered one word, experience. The interviewer was persistent, and he asked again, he said, how do I gain experience? And that's when the executive said two words, bad decisions. (laughs) Guys, there are two ways to learn in life. From your own experiences or from the experiences of others. If you're determined to learn from all your own experiences, you've got a tough road to hoe. The fool has to make his own mistakes. The wise man, though, learns from others. Why learn the hard way? (laughs) Why not learn the easy way? We need to be wise, not otherwise. It's been said a proverb is a short statement based on long experience. Why enroll in the school of hard knocks when you can learn from its graduates? And that's what we have here in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs, King Solomon wants to pass on wisdom to his son. And 23 times he addresses his words to my son. Over and over he says it. Solomon wants his son to learn life the easy way, to examine the experiences of others and learn from the wisdom that they have gleaned. According to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, Solomon penned 3,000 Proverbs. Only 700, though, or about 25% of his Proverbs are recorded in this book. But the ones we have should be treasured. They are packed with wisdom. Proverbs reminds me of a familiar scene from the Beverly Hillbillies. You remember every time Jethro Bodine pulled some boneheaded stunt, Uncle Jed would sort of scratch his head and say to himself, one of these days, I got to have a long talk with that boy. Well, in essence, Proverbs is King Solomon's long talk with his Jethro. The book begins with Solomon stating the purpose behind his Proverbs. He wants to communicate wise counsel and discretion, especially to the youth of his nation. Verse 7 states his thesis, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Did you know that God wants us to fear Him? In Scripture, when a person is confronted with God, initially they are terrified. They're frightened. Now, some people want to water this down. They'll say that, To fear God is to respect Him. It's to reverence Him. It's to simply reverence God. And that's a big part of fearing God. Don't misunderstand. But when a person meets the awesome God, they're literally scared. They are shaking like a leaf. That is a normal, natural reaction to facing God. He's awesome. Does the fear of the Lord mean a literal fear? You bet it does. According to the Sandy Adams Dictionary, fear means fear. But you see, whenever people meet God, they are initially terrified, but then God responds to them with a message. And you know what it is? Almost always it's, fear not, 
Fear not. And here's how I define the fear of the Lord. It's a fear with a fear not. It's a fear with a fear not. The fear of God is like the respect a football player has for his coach. When I played ball, I was literally afraid of my coach. Why not? He had the power to make my life miserable. He could make me run laps, do push-ups. He could put me on the bench. He could decide if and when and where I played. My football destiny was in the hands of that man. Did I fear upsetting him? You bet I did. I feared. But there was also a fear not associated with my coach. For I knew he wanted me to succeed. I knew he had my best interest at heart. I feared him, but he was also my best friend. When it came to my coach's instructions, I took them seriously for two reasons. Number one, I didn't want to risk making him mad. But number two, I knew that his instructions would help me get better. My attitude toward my coach, you see, was a mixture of love and fear. And that's the attitude we need to have toward God. A mixture. I follow the Lord, yes, because I fear Him. But I also follow the Lord because He always greets me with a fear not. He loves me. And so in my opinion, the fear of the Lord is a fear and a fear not. The rest of chapter 1 sounds the warning in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. You see, bad stuff happens when you allow yourself to be influenced by the wrong people. The old saying is true, bad company corrupts good morals. Here's another way of saying it. A person with horse sense doesn't trot with the pack. A study was done by a team of psychologists headed by a doctor named Ruth Berinda. Ten teenagers were shown three straight lines of varying lengths on a board. Then they were asked to choose which of the three were the longest lines. Unbeknownst to one of the teenagers, the other nine were told to pick line two, even though it was not the longest. In 75% of the cases, that tenth teenager buckled under to the pressure and ended up agreeing with the majority even though they knew it wasn't true. Often the teenager had a confused look on his face. He wasn't stupid, but his desire to fit in was stronger than his commitment to the truth. You see, we're all prone to peer pressure. We're all tempted to let the popular opinion override what we know is right. That's why when sinners entice, do not consent. In chapter 2, Solomon says that if you want wisdom, you have to go for it. It won't just come to you. In verse verse 4, he tells us, If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see, a treasure hunter spends years checking out clues, running down leads before he brings home the riches. Wisdom, likewise, is a quest. We have to seek for it. Verse 6 says, the Lord gives wisdom. But understand, He gives it to those who ask and who seek and who knock. It reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask of God, 
who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. The rest of chapter 2 describes the benefits of wisdom. Verse 11 tells us discretion will preserve you. And verse 16 tells us it will deliver you from the immoral woman. Guys, there is a loose lady on the loose. She might even be going to church. You see, she's in a boring marriage. She's tired of her husband. And she's a spoiled brat. She's used to having it all. And in order to spice up her life and reinforce her vanity, she's out looking for a sexual conquest. She doesn't care if she ruins lives and destroys families. She doesn't care if her own husband finds out. She's bitter toward him anyway. She's on the prowl. A loose lady is on the loose. This woman has brought down other men. And now she sets her sights on you. And this is why you desperately men need wisdom. And Solomon will spend three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, trying to protect us from this loose lady. But first, chapter 3 is vital. It explains how wisdom impacts my walk with God. Verses 5 and 6 deal with direction. If I step up and trust God, if I step back and question myself and not rely on my own wisdom, if I step out and act on God's word in my life, then God will direct my steps. What a wonderful promise. Got a good tape if you'd like to explore that more. You can check it out at the tape library. Get this morning's tape and it'll help you understand those two verses. Verses 9 through 10 deal with dedication. We're told, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. See, a faith that doesn't reach a man's wallet is a suspect faith. Do you honor God with the first fruits of all your increase, with the first cut of that weekly pay? According to Solomon, if you honor God in your giving, your barns will be filled with plenty, he says, and your vats will overflow with new wine. If you honor God with your finances, then God will honor you. Verses 11 and 12 deal with discipline. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. God disciplines his kids through conflict or circumstance, through inner turmoil or conviction. God knows how to get our attention. If the Lord takes you to the woodshed, it's only because he loves you and he cares for you. And he wants to steer you back into the right path. Verses 13 through 18 list the dividends of walking in wisdom. We're told in verse 16, length of days is in her right hand. And in her left hand are riches and honor. Seek wisdom. She brings a lot with her. Verses 21 through 26 describe the deliverance of wisdom. Verse 21 tells us, keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul. The chapter closes with a collection of don'ts. Don't withhold good when you can give it. Be generous. Don't pick a fight unnecessarily. Don't envy the evildoer. Chapter 3 teaches us direction, dedication, discipline, dividends, deliverance, and don'ts. And if we follow the advice here, our lives will be enriched in so many ways. 
as we learn to walk with God in wisdom. Chapter 4 begins with Solomon recounting how he learned wisdom from his father. King David's advice to Solomon is summed up in verse 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And Solomon took that to heart. You remember the story. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God came to Solomon with a blank check. And he told him he would give him any request, whatever he asked. Solomon asked for wisdom. And remember how God responded. He says, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor. You see, Solomon got wisdom, plus everything else he could have asked for but didn't. It was a wise man who was getting wiser. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 is a key verse. It says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. In Scripture, the heart is the seat of the desires. And we should be careful what we desire. As I said this morning, where you go in the hereafter depends on what you are after here. Where is your heart? Desire determines destiny. We end up worshiping and serving our wants. Desire money and money will become your master. You see, the issues of life flow out of what I choose to seek after. And that's why we need to keep our hearts fixed on God. You see, I have many involvements in my life. I have many duties. But my heart's desire is to know God. It's to love God. It's to serve God. The heart is the spring of life. And if mixed motives creep in at the level of the heart, it's like contaminating the headwaters of the stream. Suddenly the whole stream from there downward becomes polluted. All kinds of evil influences stink up the life when the heart is defiled. Keep your desires pure. Keep your top affection, your single desire to love the Lord and serve Him and want to be all for Him you can be. Another important passage is found in chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. There we're told, let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. See, I wouldn't have that big knot on my head had I followed that proverb. When I walked out the back door yesterday morning, if I had been looking up rather than looking to side to side, I would have seen the garage door right in front of me. But instead, I banged right into it. You see, it's just, it's the inattention. It's getting distracted. It's varying to the left or the right. It's the little things sometimes that lead to failure in our lives. It's the slight deviations it's the little compromises that often set us up for major failure. In 1983, when Korean Airlines Flight 007 left Anchorage, Alaska for Seoul, Korea, no one noticed that the navigational system contained a one and a half degree error. That's not much, just a degree and a half. Even a hundred miles out, the flaw was still indiscernible. But as the 747 continued past the Aleutian Islands and out over the Pacific Ocean, it began to stray off course. 
because of this slight error. Before long, it had penetrated Soviet airspace. Russian MiGs were scrambled. The plane was shot down, killing hundreds of people. And why? Because of a slight deviation at takeoff that wasn't detected. The same can happen to us spiritually. A slight deviation in doctrine can prove deadly later on. A compromise in conduct can end up fatal. This is why we need to ponder our path and not turn to the right hand or to the left, but to stay straight right down the center line of God's will. That's where we need to be walking. Proverbs chapters 1 through 7 warn us about two people. They warn us about the evil man and they warn us about this immoral woman, this loose lady that's on the loose. In chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, we're told to steer clear of the wicked, avoid his evil influences. And in chapter 5, we again run into this immoral woman, this woman who's out on the prowl. Solomon warns us in chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. The word translated wormwood means bitterness. And it referred to a poisonous herb that the Jews used to keep moss out of their clothes. And Solomon is literally telling us that kissing an immoral woman is like cuddling up to a box of mothballs. Understand the danger, the deception involved in illicit sex. Premarital sex, adultery, doesn't matter. Illicit sex, unbiblical. You see, there is an initial promise of pleasure. But in the end, there is a deep, severe bitterness. I read an article once from New Woman magazine. A lady made a heart-wrenching confession. This is what she said. I am 35 years old and have only recently come to terms with the fact that my free attitude about sex has been destructive. After many lovers, three serious affairs with married men, two marriages, one abortion, and herpes, I wish someone had suggested that my casual attitude was wrong. You remember, the wise man learns from other people's mistakes. The fool is the one who learns by trial and error. We're told in verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Beware. The wrong girl can lead you from hooters to hell in no time. Verse 8 is strategic. It says, remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Here's the golden rule. You young people, y'all listen, wake up, sit up. Here is the golden rule. Write it down. Time plus opportunity equals trouble. Let me say it again. Time plus opportunity. You guys say it with me. Time plus opportunity equals trouble. Good. Hey. I don't care if you're a Christian. I don't care if the two of you love the Lord. 
I don't care what your spiritual status is. You take two young people, put them alone in a dark room with time on their hands, and there's going to be trouble. They are set up and headed for failure. When will we learn we cannot trust ourselves? Our hope is in Christ. We forget that we are made of clay and clay can crumble. Hey, if you're a young man dating a girl, I advocate kissing her as much as you would like. Just as long as you always do it in front of her parents. That's right. As long as you're in front of her parents, you can do it as long as you like. You see, if you're spending time with your date in a public place where there is no opportunity, you're in safe situation. If you're alone by yourself where there is opportunity, you need to make sure you're not there for long. It's when you put the two together. Where there's time but no opportunity, you're fine. Where there's opportunity but no time, make sure it's no time. But when there's time plus opportunity, that always equals trouble. That's why Solomon says, remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Just don't give it any time. Don't give it an opportunity. Solomon says in verse 9, lest you give your honor to others in your years to the cruel one. Having sex outside marriage throws away your personal dignity. Allow yourself to be used or use someone else for nothing but sexual gratification and it shatters a person's self-worth. Animals are motivated by impulse and pleasure, not human beings. We're called by God to live by principle. Don't give your honor away to others. Preserve it. Keep it. Treasure it. And find someone who will do likewise. Verses 18 and 19 are written to the married man who's tempted with the offer of the seductress. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. In other words, the best defense is a good offense. A satisfying sex life with your spouse is a good deterrent to the temptress. A movie star appeared on a talk show once and was asked by the host, what makes a great lover? But the answer was not what he expected. Here's what the movie star said to the host. He said, a great lover is someone who can satisfy one woman all her life. And who can be satisfied by one woman all his life. A great lover isn't the guy who goes from woman to woman. Any dog can do that. A great lover is content to explore the joys of sexual pleasure with his spouse. That's what makes a great lover. The two of them. To be so skilled in the subject that they can satisfy each other over and over again for a lifetime. That's what makes a great lover. Proverbs 6, verse 6, teaches us another important lesson. He says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Be like an ant, not a slug. 
An ant is industrious. An ant is hardworking. An ant is self-motivated. If you ate with us last week here at the birthday celebration, here on the church grounds, you noticed that the ants were out in full force. They were storing up hamburger and hot dog crumbs for all winter long. They know that the fellowship moves inside about this time of the year, and so they were out in full force last week. In fact, I have concluded that ants love orange drink. And that's why they were out just having their fill last week. Hey, the wise man is like an ant. Not that he likes orange drink. But he's like the ant in that he works hard. He works while he can. He builds up a surplus while he can work so that he can enjoy that surplus when he can't work. He stores for a rainy day. He plans for the future. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. There is a difference, though, between storing and stockpiling. When I store an item for future use, I know that I'll need it later. And it's just wise planning for me to prepare ahead of time. When I stockpile, on the other hand, I accumulate a surplus that I may or may never need. I'm trusting in my pile, and thus I'm not trusting in Jesus. You see, the son, though, has no conflict with the ant. Trust God to provide your need and store it up when God gives it to you in advance. That's just good wisdom. Proverbs 6, verse 16 tells us, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And here they are. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And here is the abomination. One who sows discord among brethren. God is love. But there are seven things that love hates. First of all, it hates a haughty strut. A man walking around with his nose up in the air like he's better than everybody else. You've seen that strut. God hates the gate that says I'm great. And sadly, some of the proudest looks I've seen have been in the church. Isn't that sad? God hates a deceptive tongue. He hates hands that are splattered with innocent blood. Surely the abortionist qualifies here. Likewise, the abusive husband or the abusive parent. He hates a conniving heart. Not just those who stumble, but those who actually plot for others to stumble. Those who are actually plotting evil. It's one thing to fall into a sense. another thing to go out intending to do it. Feet that are attracted to trouble. Those who go out looking for it. And abusive lips. You know, you can abuse not just with your hands, but you can also abuse another person with your lips. And worst of all, the sin that God calls an abomination. Now think of the sin that God hates above all others. Think about it. What would you say would be the one sin that God would hate above all others? The most sinister of sins. Here it is, verse 19. One who sows discord among brethren. See, I'm thinking of the mass murderer or the serial rapist. But in God's mind, it's the church member who stirs up friction in the church. 
The most diabolical sinner in the house is the person who always points out problems and nurses wounds and aligns brother against brother and fosters friction and creates conflict among the sisters. God hates the person who rocks the boat then blames it on the storm. Verses 24 and 25 of chapter 6 describe the loose lady's ammunition. What she uses to trap the gullible young man. And notice she has three tools. Flattery, figure, and flirtations. Don't fall for her ploys. They say before a snake eats you, it covers you with its saliva. And so does the sexual predator. They flatter you. They butter you up. Oh, you're, you're, you're not the same kind of man as my husband. Oh, you're so much stronger. You're so much kinder. You're so much nicer. And, and they just lay it on thick and just flatter you. See, they butter you up before they chew you up and spit you out. Verse 26 warns us, For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. In verse 27, Solomon asks a question, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? In other words, play with fire and you're eventually going to get burned. You can't keep kissing and smooching in the back seat of the car without it eventually going too far. You can't play with fire and not get burned. It's an impossibility. It no longer becomes an if. It becomes a when. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. It doesn't matter how much you love the Lord. It doesn't matter how strong a grip you have on your emotions. It doesn't matter how mature you are. Enough time. And enough opportunity equals trouble. Under the right circumstances, we all can buckle. So beware. Use wisdom. In chapter 7, Solomon gives an example of a young man who makes all the mistakes. In verse 6, he looks out his window. He sees him falling into the trap and he describes what he sees. I look through my lattice. And saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner. And he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark of night. You see, rather than taking the long way home that night, he decided to walk right by that loose lady's house. This boy is an accident waiting to happen. You see, never underestimate logistics when it comes to your fight against sin. Time and place are important. End up at the wrong place at the wrong time and you give the devil an opportunity. Beware. I like the old Danish proverb, no one can be caught in a place he does not visit. Even if it adds 15 minutes to your commute, this man would have been better off going home another way. But he walked right by her house. 
Read verses 14 and 15. And you see how far this woman goes to trap this young man. She tosses out the old trump card. She uses the religious rationale. Oh, just this morning, I went down to the temple and I made an offering to God. And now we bump into each other. Oh, it must be God's will we sleep with each other tonight. You laugh, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard things just as stupid. It always amazes me how sexual passion can tinker with theological conviction. Suddenly, people conclude that the Bible doesn't really mean what it says about sin. You know, it's open to interpretation. Ours is a special case. God's made an exception in our situation. Guys, it's not an exception. It's a deception. Look at the outcome. Verse 22. Immediately he went after her as an ox goes to slaughter. Verse 23. He did not know it would cost his life. He sums it up in verse 27. Her house is the way to hell. Guys, beware of sexual immorality. For a moment of pleasure, it will cost you your life. Is it really worth the price? In Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon uses a poetic device known as personification. He talks about wisdom as if wisdom were a woman. And it, he calls a she. Personification is when a non-human entity is given human characteristics. And Solomon uses this poetical device to draw a contrast between wisdom and the loose lady. You see, both are after the young man's attention. Both want his devotion. Guys, here's the real girl. Here's the girl you want to get to know. She's beautiful. She is the girl of your dreams. Here is the catch of all catches. Here is the rose among thorns. Here is the girl you can feast your eyes on. She is gorgeous. She is attractive. And her name is Miss Wisdom. You want her. Notice what Solomon says of her in verse 11. For wisdom is better than rubies. And all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. What would you say if I told you I could fix you up tonight with Miss Wisdom? Tonight you can meet her. As a matter of fact, she speaks to you in verses 12 through 36. There she introduces herself. She's attractive. She's rich, by the way. She's trustworthy. She says in verse 17, I love those who love me. In chapter 9, she even has her own house. Hey, how's that? You need a girl with her own house. A marriage banquet has been prepared. In verse 4, she offers herself to you. She says, whoever is simple or foolish, let him turn in here. Guys, come and wed yourself to wisdom. You'll never regret it. Chapter 9, verse 8 is an interesting proverb. It says, do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, 
and he will love you. You see, a fool thinks he knows it all. He's unteachable. And when you try to inform him, he resents your efforts. But a wise man is just the opposite. He's humble. Point out a mistake and he'll take it to heart. He'll even thank you for pointing it out. Once a golf pro was giving a lesson. But every time he made a suggestion on the fellow's swing, the student had a better suggestion, a better approach. Well, the pro would just agree and move on. Well, when the lesson was over, he charged the man $75. And a bystander couldn't believe it. He went up and he asked the pro, he said, Hey, how could you take this man's money when you didn't really teach him anything about golf? The pro answered, I learned a long time ago, it's a waste of time to sell answers to a man who wants to buy echoes. That's the point of this proverb. Are you interested in answers? Or are you just wanting to hear echoes? It was Earl Weaver, the longtime manager of the Baltimore Orioles, who said, It's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. Don't be a know-it-all. Be teachable. Chapter 9 ends with another warning about adultery. Verses 17 and 18 tell us, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he who does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Forbidden fruit comes with a rush of adrenaline, the novelty of it, the thrill of the hunt. But the thrill ends with a chill when you realize the hellacious consequences that follow. A good break in the book occurs at the end of chapter 9. The first nine chapters were at least loosely organized and held together by the call of wisdom. While the next 20 chapters are seemingly randomly selected, they, they're just sort of a collection of individual proverbs, and it's hard to find a common thread throughout. I like what commentator Robert Allen writes, though, about this absence of order in the book of Proverbs. He says, Proverbs is truly a collection of sayings with no arrangement, outline, order, or progression. When you think about it, however, life is like that. We try to bring order to life, but opportunities, crisis, and unexpected intrusions come. And perhaps this is why Proverbs comes to us in the form that it does. I think that's an interesting thought. Let's tackle a few more chapters, though, to get a jump on next week. Chapter 10 begins with the words, The Proverbs of Solomon. And for the next 20 chapters, I'm going to just pick and choose, move through, and touch on some of my favorite Proverbs. Notice chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. In other words, the lazy man becomes the poor man. It reminds me of the woman who was standing next to her car on the side of the road. She had a flat tire. Well, a truck driver pulled over to offer his help. She said she didn't know a thing about changing tires, and he said, that's okay. The chivalrous truck driver decided to take care of the problem. He changed the tire in no time, and he was about to drop the jack when the woman asked him, Sir, would you please be careful lowering the car? My husband's in the back seat taking a nap. 
<laughs> Talk about a slack hand. He says the slack hand becomes poor. The lazy man gets nowhere. Be industrious. Get up. Go to work. Work hard. You'll be blessed. Verse 9. He who walks with integrity walks securely. But he who perverts his ways will become known. In other words, when you speak the truth, you never have to remember what you said. Do you know that? If you're telling a bunch of lies, boy, you better remember the stories. Honesty and integrity are the best safeguard against accusation. Verse 19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. I have discovered that if I talk long enough, I'll say something that I shouldn't. Never fails. If I talk to you long enough, I'll end up saying something I shouldn't have said. Thinking out loud has caused me more trouble and more problems than any other mistake that I have made. Guys, limit how long your mouth is open and you'll have fewer opportunities to stick your foot in it. The Greek philosopher Plato put it this way, Wise men talk because they have something to say. Fools talk because they have to say something. And that's what will get you in trouble. You know, it reminds me of Pastor Chuck. Whenever we go out to dinner with Pastor Chuck, it's so frustrating because he, he doesn't like to talk. He's not being rude. I mean, he's just a man of few words. He travels the world. All kinds of things are going on in his life. But you have to ask him questions. You have to pry information out of him because he, he just doesn't say a lot. And that's wisdom. That's wisdom. In the multitudes of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Have you noticed that world, worldly blessings always come with baggage? You get that new car, and then you discover, man, I can't believe the insurance is this much. I mean, worldly blessings always come with baggage, but God's gifts have no downside. His blessings are all blessing. Note 2, verse 26. As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy man to those who send him. Let a lazy man represent you and it'll backfire. Proverbs 11, verse 1 mandates honest business practices, truth in advertising. It says, dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You see, in ancient times, a crook would tinker with his scales. On the distribution scales, his ounce was a half an ounce. On the pay scales, his ounce was an ounce and a half. Hey, always sell a fair portion at a fair price. Make it your policy. For your customers, what you see is what you get. Verse 4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Hey, all the world's money won't help you on that day when you stand before God on the judgment day. All that will matter then is a right relationship with Jesus. Notice chapter 11, verse 13. A talebearer, which is another word for gossip, Reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. 
When a gossip gets hold of a juicy bit of information, he or she can't wait to spill the beans, blab it to the world. Reminds me of the three preachers that were out fishing. The first guy said, man, guys, I've got a confession I need to make. I've got a real problem with lust. I've gotten on the Internet and I'm looking at dirty pictures and I just got a real problem. Second preacher, he kind of rubbed his eyes and he says, you know, he says, I'm convicted too. He says, he says I've got a problem with, with money. He says, I've got sticky fingers and I've been skimming off the collection there at the church. Pray for me. Third pastor, he chimes in, guys, I've got a problem too. I need to confess it. It's eating me up. So I'm a terrible gossip and I just can't wait to get back to town. <laughs> See, a talebearer reveals secrets. But he who is a faithful spirit conceals the matter. See, a faithful person ends gossip by killing it the moment it comes their way. They kill it instantly by not passing it on. That's how you kill gossip. Verse 14, when there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Sometimes the best way to get a good idea is to get a lot of ideas. And a multitude of counselors can force you to look at all the angles on a problem. It's healthy. The idea in verse 15 appears over and over in the book of Proverbs. We saw it at the beginning of chapter 6, and it appears again in chapter 17, verse 18, and then later in chapter 22, verse 26. Notice verse 15 reads, He who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but he who hates being surety is secure. In other words, don't co-sign on a loan. If that person can't stand for the money on their own, don't you bail them out. There is a good reason they can't qualify for the loan, and you may be setting both them and you up for financial failure by becoming surety for their loan. I've been asked to co-sign for people in the fellowship, and I've always refused. Hey, if I can afford it, I'll just give you the money. But the Bible tells me not to co-sign. Verse 24 and 25 teach us to be givers to God and gracious to men. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Notice that. You scatter, you give more. You hold on to it, you become poor. The generous soul will be made rich. And he who wavers, or or he who waters, will also be watered himself. I like that. In other words, you can never outgive God. Never. Verse 30 is especially applicable to those of us who are followers of Jesus. He who wins souls is wise. Why do you think God's left you here? Why do you think you're taking up space on planet Earth? It's because God wants you to win souls. Win souls to Jesus. Guys, when was the last time you prayed with someone for them to receive Jesus Christ into their life? God wants us to be verbal, vocal witnesses. He wants us to be winning souls for Jesus. Proverbs 12, verse 1, ends with the statement, He who hates correction is stupid. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? 
You tell your kids not to use that word. Don't call anybody stupid. But God calls you stupid if you hate correction. Solomon is blunt. If you're unteachable, if you can't learn from your mistakes, if you can't take it when someone tells you you're wrong, man, you're just plain stupid. Verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. She doesn't crown him. She is the crown. Her kindness, her gentleness make him proud. Chapter 12, verse 10 is for animal lovers. Did you know there's a proverb for animal lovers? How many animal lovers here tonight? Here's a proverb for animal lovers. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. In other words, kindness extends to all kinds. It reminds me of the man who strolled into the restaurant with his dog under his arm. The maitre d' said, wait a minute, buddy, no dogs allowed in this restaurant. But the guy says, you don't understand, this is a talking dog. Talking dog. Yeah, he's a talking dog. So tell you what, said, I'm going to ask him three questions. And if he can answer these three questions, how about you just giving us dinner tonight, letting dinner be on the house? Maitre d' says, well, okay, I'd, I'd like to see this. And so the man turns to his dog and he says, okay, Spot, what's the opposite of smooth? And Spot goes, roof. Hey, got one right, one out of one. He says, okay, Spot, what's on the top of a house? He says, roof. Hey, hey, two out of two, we're on a roll. He says, okay, Spot, here's the grand finale. Who's the best baseball player of all time? He goes, Roof. <laughs> three out of three. Here's dinner. Where's dinner? We want dinner. The maitre d' is just so disgusted with this guy. He grabs him by the shirt, throws him and the dog out of the restaurant. And they're laying there on the sidewalk when the dog turns to his owner and he says, I guess with that last question, I should have said Aaron. Hey, the moral of the story is be kind to your animals, whether they talk or not. <laughs> Every teenager needs to pay close attention to verse 26. You teenagers paying close attention? Chapter 12, verse 26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. If peer pressure is a reality... Make sure you set yourself up for some positive peer pressure. Come to church on Sunday night. Hang out on the back three rows with some other kids that are seeking the Lord. This is good. This is good. Get with the right people and they will be an example that will help you become a right person. Let me close with verse 27. It starts with a hilarious picture. And then it teaches a serious lesson. It says, the lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting. In other words, he's got food. His fridge is full. He's just too lazy to get up and cook. That's a pretty sad picture. The verse ends, but diligence is man's precious possession. 
The word diligence conjures up the idea of a logger chopping a tree over and over along the same cut line until that tree finally falls. Even though it's boring, even though it's mundane work, he keeps laying the axe to that same spot over and over again until the tree falls. And this is how it feels to get up every morning and go to work. Every morning and go to school. Same old work. Same old school. It's like chopping the same old tree on the very same spot. It's not thrilling. It doesn't feel chill bumps up and down your spine. At times, it's boring. At times, you'd rather sleep in. But remember, but diligence is man's precious possession. And you don't know when that axe will come down that one time. Because of your faithfulness, that big tree will fall and success will come your way. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful Proverbs. We've gotten a start tonight. Lord, we'll finish next week. We pray you'll lead and guide us as we study and as we try to fill our hearts with wisdom. She is a beautiful lady, and we want to embrace her tonight, and we want to seek after her and live our lives with wisdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.